Right, good morning. Uh, <laughs> those of you who don't know me, my name is Dale, and I'm one of the elders at New Life Community Church, which, as we've already heard this morning, is one church that meets in multiple locations. Now, for those of you who came here this morning thinking that we were going to be uh, looking at our preaching series in Hebrews, sorry about that. We're just taking a short break for two weeks um, as we look at a little mini-series called Honouring God and His Church. Now, the reason we're doing that is because as an eldership team, we want to share the fruit um, of some of the things we've been looking at and working on for a while now. And so that means today is part one. Next week is part two. So with that in mind, just by way of introduction, I want to give you a little look behind the scenes at something of the journey we've been on as an eldership team. I want to, I want to explain what's motivated us, what we wanted to achieve and where that's led us. So over the last couple of years, um, we've noticed a number of good, godly leaders whom we love and respect arriving at some very different conclusions and practices about who can teach in the local church. And in prayerful consideration of these things, we felt stirred by God as an eldership team to re-examine and investigate the role of teaching in the local church. We wanted to know how and why people had arrived at those conclusions. What's the biblical support? What's the challenges to those positions? And ultimately, we wanted to look at our theology and say, how does our practice align with what we conclude? So our intention was to go on a journey to explore teaching in the local church. But that motivation has led us on more of a grand tour of theology and scripture. As this one topic has touched on every other part of God's word. We've looked at everything from God's original intentions for man and woman. Through the sweeping narrative of the Bible and the way God uses individuals and teams to accomplish his purposes, right on into the structure and practice of the early church, and even touching on the very nature of God, who he is and how he operates. And looking at this top topic has led us to revisit and explore many, many interconnected topics. And that is good. It's good because it means we've arrived at a place where we feel we have a big picture of the best way we can honour God and his church moving forward. And after all, that is our heart as an eldership team and as a church family, to honour God and the church he's made us responsible for. In this message, I'm going to unpack some of the key foundational principles that we'll look to build on and outwork in the second message. We're going to look at the role of elders. We're going to look at God as team. We're going to look at man, as, man and woman as team, the household of God and the matter of authority. <clears throat> so we've got quite a lot of ground to cover. I'm probably going to go you know, at a reasonable pace, but there'll be some information at the end on what we're planning to do to help clarify some of the things we're talking about. So try and stay connected. If I look round and everybody's just going off to sleep, then I'll do a little dance and hopefully <laughs> that'll wake everybody up. So the first thing we're going to look at is the role of elders. Now I've included this um, as a sort of an extended introduction really, 
Because if we want to explore teaching, we need to know how that role relates to those that God has appointed to look after his church. So at NLCC, it's um, the elders who are Paul, Tim, Cain and myself, who are the appointed servants who have leadership responsibility over the whole church family. But what do elders actually do? If you've seen us in the branch together, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it mostly involves drinking coffee, laughing together, taking the mickey out of one another and talking about theology until our brains go numb. But in all seriousness, what is it that only the elders do? What is it that we're responsible for that no one else is? Well, there are some clues in the name, or more importantly, the names that the Bible uses. Because the Bible uses a number of different terms to refer to elders. The first one we're going to look at is overseer. Now, this is the big picture aspect of our role. As overseers, our responsibility is to care for and keep watch over the whole church family. We have the responsibility of imparting vision, values, culture and theology and to see the whole church thrive, grow and flourish in God. The next one is elder. Now elder literally means bearded one, as I have said before. Now the fact that I have a beard and none of the other elders do doesn't mean that I'm more of an elder than they are. Probably. Because <laughs> the reality is the word elder is just a reference to maturity. The implication is an elder is someone who has a mature knowledge and faith in God and his word. And that flows into the qualifications for elders to guard right doctrine. Elders are to hold tightly to God's word so they can instruct others rightly in it, to rebuke or correct those that try to twist or change it. And that links to the third term, shepherd or pastor. Like shepherds, we are to lead and direct the church family in the way of Christ. Imagine, Jesus leads the way, and as shepherds, we follow him and lead the church to do the same. But being a shepherd also involves protecting the flock from predators. And part of our role is to do that. To protect, to protect the church from those who would bring harm, particularly in the form of false teaching that causes division, breaks up team, and distorts God's truth. And we're also called to be like Jesus, the chief shepherd and the husband of the church, who laid down his life for the sheep. Our job then is not to <clears throat> lord it over the church, but to lay ourselves down so that you might be built up. So biblically, the unique office and role of elder encompasses all of these aspects. And it's part of Jesus' provision and blessing over his bride, the church. And since Jesus is our chief shepherd, we as elders, in submission to him, shepherd or serve under the covering of his authority as those who are accountable to him for the welfare of the church. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Next thing we're going to look at is God as team. Now, teaching in the local church might feel quite far away at this point, I grant you. But it is important that our conclusions and our applications 
that we unpack next week are built on the whole picture that we see in scripture. And to that end, we're going to start with God, the creator. Because everything that is good, including good practice, comes from him. And we're made in his image, and it's therefore right and proper that we look to God first. And when we do that, we find there are some key principles that are rooted in the way God chooses to reveal himself, relate to, and operate within his creation. God has revealed himself to us as Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has revealed that in his nature, he is love and he is good. And therefore, the way that individual persons of the Trinity demonstrate that love in relationship to one another is also good. And one of the ways God demonstrates that relationship is in team. You've heard me mention that already. In Genesis 1, we see two of the Trinity at work. God the Father creating the heavens and the earth, and God the Spirit hovering over the waters. John 1 and Colossians 1 tell us that God the Son was present and instrumental in that creation activity as well. So the whole of Team Trinity is at work in creation. That's God working in perfect relationship with himself. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, understanding and outworking their role in a beautiful demonstration of team. It's also important to note that all three persons of the Godhead are perfectly satisfied with one another. None of them are annoyed at the job they have to do. God perfectly models what it looks like to operate as a team. And there's no division, no discontent. In fact, the only conflict we ever see is Jesus in his humanity wrestling with the quickly approaching sacrifice of his life but even here Jesus perfectly embodies humility and submission and servant-heartedness by surrendering his will to the will of God the Father and that tells us something really important it tells us that not only God not only has God chosen to reveal himself to us in team But that within that team, he reveals a model of headship, authority, and submission. Now, those might be terms that the culture around us would wrestle with. But we can see them perfectly outworked in God. If we look at the Gospels, we see God outworks his salvation plan through Jesus. God the Father directs and sends the Son to complete his mission of salvation by laying down his life for us. God the Son submits to the Father and operates under his authority, even to the point of death on a cross. And then God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower every believer. At this point, I think it's going to be helpful for us to put a little bit of biblical definition around the terms headship, authority, and submission. So we are clear about what we do mean and what we don't mean. Let's start with headship. 
The title of headship is used to describe the role of someone who has primary responsibility and accountability. In the Bible, it's automatically attached to fathers and husbands in reflection of the example we've just looked at in the Trinity. In terms of language, covering is probably one of the most helpful terms the Bible uses to describe how this works. As soon as that title of head is given, in this case the head of the household, it's like the husband and father pops up an umbrella over their family. And this covering represents the God-given responsibility and a God-given burden to teach, protect, provide and care for their family. And the Bible says that men in these roles are uniquely accountable to God to keep that umbrella open. It does not mean that they are the only ones who teach, protect, provide and care for their family. In fact, part of their responsibility is to instruct, equip and release their families to do those things for the one another. What is unique is that if the umbrella does fall, it's to the door of the husband or the father that God will come knocking. Authority. <clears throat> so authority is the weight, power, influence and accountability attached to a role that's given to an individual. Let me give you an example. You can imagine this. If I stood in the middle of Fording Bridge on a box and said I was implementing a lockdown and that everyone ought to go home, stay indoors and avoid contact with others, do you think anyone would pay attention to me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they would. I don't think they would. I think at best I'd be laughed at or ignored, and at worst I might have to have a slightly uncomfortable conversation with a constable about disturbing the peace. The point is, it is not my role to make those sorts of decisions. Consequently, there'd be no weight to what I said, no power or influence over the behaviour of people, and I certainly wouldn't be accountable for them. But. If the Prime Minister gets up on the television box and he says the same thing, then the entire behaviour of a nation is changed overnight. And that's because his role does have weight, power and influence attached to it. And because he most certainly is accountable. In the Bible, it's not about how much weight, power or influence is attached to a role. It's the way it's exercised that's important. When God gives authority to a role, it's a privilege. And it comes with an accountability to God for how well it's exercised. And that means authority outworked within a role should always be used as a servant-hearted means of being a blessing to others. So submission then. Now, when we hear the word submission, if we are not careful, we can easily think along the lines of two WWF wrestlers choking the life out of one another, right? In a battle of wills and strength until one of them finally taps out, exhausted and defeated, and leaves the other one to strut around the ring, celebrating their victory. The truth is that's the image the devil wants us to have. 
because this picture could not be further from the true reality of biblical submission. Biblical submission is the act of one person intentionally laying themselves down so that someone else might be lifted up. It's not about conflict or opposition. It's about humility and honouring one another. And it typically flows out of a relationship of mutual love and respect. And it's motivated by an admiration for God and in obedience to his commands to prefer one another. Okay, so we've looked to God as our primary example of how we, to, how we are to operate as team. And we've seen that God models headship, authority, and submission. And we've put some fences around that. We've given some definitions to those terms. So we know what we do mean and we know what we don't mean. And the next thing for us to look at is how, as humans, we are to reflect our creator and the way he works. So we're going to look at man and woman as team. And to do that, we need to go to Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, we find out what happens in the beginning when God first creates man and woman. It shows us God's intention for humanity to bear his image in a world without sin. It teaches us what God declared to be very good. The events that followed that were very bad. And the reason things look very different in the world today. And it gives us a glimpse of what Jesus is coming to restore. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates humanity, male and female, in his image to rule the earth together. They're both blessed by God, called to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all things. As the image bearers of God, they've been given authority together to steward God's creation as team. They're made of the same stuff. They're equal in value, dignity and worth. But they're also in contrast to one another, which means they have differences. Each of them is unique in their own right. They're not interchangeable. They have their own characters, personalities, gifts, strengths, weaknesses. Adam is not Eve and Eve is not Adam. Now God didn't create in this way to show how one is superior over the other. He perfectly demonstrates through Adam and Eve how humans are individually unique and yet beautifully share much in common. In fact, this is one of the key ways that human beings reflect the image and likeness of God. As we saw earlier, God has revealed himself to us as Trinity. One God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. There is oneness and there are differences. And yet they work perfectly together with no power struggles, no division, no discontent. And in the beginning... God's original intention was for mankind to operate the same way. In his likeness, in unity and in diversity, in sameness and in difference. So that in both our nature and our behaviour, we might bring glory to God. 
So here's my key point. God's blueprint for how mission mankind was going to work was framed in the context of team. They had that mandate to fulfill as team, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they were to do that in reflection of their creator in unity and diversity. Their responsibilities over creation couldn't be outworked successfully without both the similarities and differences of man and woman in play. Another way that Adam and Eve's unity and diversity reflects God is in the principles of headship, covering and authority that we've looked at. And to understand that, we need to look at the order of creation. How's everybody doing? Everybody awake? Okay. The order of creation then. Chapter 2 teaches us that God formed Adam first and then he put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And then in verse 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. In his love and kindness, God revealed his word to Adam. He taught him doctrine. Not only what was good and safe and right for him to do, you may eat of the tr- fruit of, uh, you may eat of every tree in the garden, but what was not good, not safe and not right for him to do, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If Adam clung to God's trustworthy word as taught and obeyed it, he'd be safe and he wouldn't die. If, on the other hand, he rejected God's word and disobeyed it, he'd receive the consequences of his actions. But even here, in a world without sin, surrounded by the perfection of God's creation, God says of Adam, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Why does God think it's not good for Adam to be alone? The answer is because God is not alone. God operates in team. He's one God, yet three persons. He's fully satisfied in himself. And he knows what it is to be complete and lacking in nothing. The perfection of God is caught up in the plurality of God. It's team that makes things perfect. And it's not until both man and woman are made that God declares it's very good. This is a clear example that mankind's best or very good context to operate in is the context of plurality and team and community and family. So if that's what God's declared was very good, then let's look at what soon followed, which certainly wasn't. Excuse me. What does the fall teach us about this? As we've seen, everything that God appointed to be done in the beginning was to be done in team. In Genesis chapter 3, we encounter the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve, and a hinge point for human history. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy, the devil. And he likes to take what God has made and distort it and pervert it and ultimately render it useless or destroyed. 
And he is at work in the fall, where his strategy is divide the team. In this case, the devil takes the opportunity to raise doubt, create division, to challenge God's word, his boundaries, and ultimately his integrity. Through the serpent, the devil causes Adam and Eve to question God's truth. And the strategy works. Now, both Adam and Eve get things wrong. They were both responsible to help one another. God had given them both blessing and authority over all of his creation as team. But remember, to Adam alone, before Eve was created, God had given the instructions about the tree of knowledge. And here's where we can see those principles of headship, covering, authority and submission outworked. In his role as husband, Adam was responsible before God to teach Eve God's instruction. What was good and safe and right for them to do in line with God's word. With God as his covering, Adam was to pop up his own umbrella of covering over his family. In this way, he should have exercised a unique authority that he was uniquely accountable before God for. And we can see that outworked in verse 9, where God speaks to Adam first and calls him to account for what's happened. By working in opposition to the instructions given to Adam, Eve shows dishonour to both God and Adam's headship roles. And in doing that, she removes herself from that umbrella covering. In a similar manner, Adam joins her in her sinful activity. He doesn't try to prevent it by lovingly sharing God's word with her. And in doing so, he removes himself from God's covering. And the consequence for them both is that they suddenly became aware of their nakedness. They became aware of the fact that they were both uncovered. And it's here that we see God's mercy upon them. Because even in their nakedness and shame, God covers them both by making garments for them. And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because just like Adam and Eve, we have all sinned. We have all removed ourselves from under God's covering, which leaves us naked, ashamed and uncovered before him, and one another. But thank God for his mercy. His mercy is outworked in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, where we receive a new covering through his blood that washes away our shame, covers us in his righteousness, and restores our relationship to both God and one another. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> So here's what we believe the Bible teaches us through the creative order. Adam and Eve both had responsibilities, but as husband, it's Adam who carries that unique headship office. And God said this is very good. We believe this is the biblical model reflected in the rest of scripture, at times beautifully and at times imperfectly, but it is reflected. 
Even though both Adam and Eve got things wrong, that still hasn't changed the way God distributes that responsibility and accountability. It's not about leadership skill or talent, and it certainly isn't about one sex being more deserving. It's just about God's order, the way he does things. The point is God operates this way, and men and women in their roles as husbands and wives reflect and bring honour to God by also operating in this way. But how does this outwork in the household of God? The church. Family is the model that God uses in his word to teach us how we are to behave, relate and work together in his kingdom. If we look at our own family units for a moment, we see that we are responsible together as team to outwork the purposes of God and enjoy the benefits of his presence and his creation to work together, grow together, and be a blessing to the world together. As we've seen, husbands and fathers hold a unique office of accountability to lead their families well before God, to pop open that covering over their families by ensuring that God's word is imparted. What this doesn't mean is that the husband or father is the only one responsible for delivering God's instruction. What it does mean is that he is accountable for what God, uh, for what is delivered. A husband or father who's operating under the grace that God gives him in his role understands the value of the team that God has given him. And that allows him to focus on enabling and releasing gifting, to lean on other skill sets identified in the family, to operate as team, to grow together and teach one another. And that family model is reflected in the church. What we see in the New Testament is followers of Jesus being made everywhere as that gospel is being proclaimed. And this results in churches being established and elders appointed to oversee those churches. And the primary way those followers of Jesus are told to relate to one another is as family. And if we're family, then we're a team working together on God's mission to extend his kingdom and share the good news with the world. And it's within this context that the role of elder is appointed. Like Adam, like husbands and like fathers, this is a unique office of headship accountability and responsibility before God. As elders, it's our job to open up that umbrella of covering over the whole church family. It's our job to continually operate under God's grace so that we can focus on imparting God's word, identifying, enabling and releasing gifting and skills within the church family. And that's our job to keep us moving forward, growing together, teaching one another and reflecting God in our unity and in our diversity. As an eldership team, this is the New Testament model of church that we aspire to. Elders appointed to oversee local church families in relationship with the apostolic gifting. In doing this, we believe before God that we are being biblically faithful. But we also recognise that not every church family is going to outwork the same type of church government. And that's okay. 
We are called to faithfully shepherd the family God has given us. And this is the model that we think is most aligned with God's word. Which means when you look at the church structure here at NLCC, you'll find an eldership team of men that oversees a local church family that includes men and women who faithfully serve in key leadership roles across the church. We are all the body of Christ, feet, hands, arms and legs, all of them needed, all of them vital with Christ Jesus as the head. So we've covered some big picture stuff. We've looked at headship and authority and submission. And we've seen how those principles are modelled by God, then reflected in men and women, and then in the household of God. The final thing I'd like to look at today is the matter of authority. Because I do think it will provide a good bridge between what we've covered today and what we'll look at in part two. When we look at things like our church structure, what the Bible says about the role of deacons, and our conclusion on the topic of teaching in the church. But first, let's look at the matter of authority. If we follow the argument so far that husbands, fathers and elders have a unique authority before God to see their family flourish, then the next logical question is how should that authority be exercised? And although there are many aspects to that question, for our purpose today, I just want to draw out one principle. Authority can be given. This is one of the ways God exercises his authority. And as we've seen, that informs and shapes how we should exercise our authority. Let's just look at some biblical examples of how that works in scripture. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is the moment of the Great Commission, but the important thing I want to highlight here is that Jesus has been given authority from God the Father. And since we've been looking in Genesis, let's remind ourselves that God gives mankind, both man and woman, authority over all the earth as part of their stewardship. God also gives authority to judges, to kings, and to prophets. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, whatever authority we see at work, God has given authority in order for that to happen. In Acts 14.23, we have the apostles appointing elders, who have been given governing authority by God. In Acts 6, we see men of good reputation and full of the spirit and wisdom given authority by the apostles. There are many other examples of authority being given throughout scripture. But the key thing is when it reflects the way that God does it, it helps to instruct us in the way in which God delights authority to be used. To have authority is a privilege. To be given authority is a privilege. To entrust the level of authority to others is a great privilege and a great responsibility before God. But like the parable of the tenants, godly authority isn't something you cling on to. By God's grace and guidance, it's something you invest in others with the hope of fruitful multiplication. 
In conclusion then, hopefully we've caught a glimpse of the pattern of team that flows from one God in three persons to man and woman made in his image and likeness and into the household of God, which is the church family. And hopefully we've understood something about what godly headship, authority and submission looks like with husbands, fathers and elders popping up their covering over the families God's given them, equipping, releasing and causing them to flourish. And we've seen that godly authority can be given and invested in others for the benefit of the household of God and to the glory of God, who delights when his children reflect both his heart and his actions. These are the foundations we'll look to build on in part two. If I could have the uh, worship team come up. If you have your diaries, I want to share with you two Wednesdays that we have set aside as an eldership team as an opportunity to come and chat with us informally about anything I've said today or anything I'll say next week regarding theology and practice. So if you want to have a chat, if you've got questions that you feel I haven't answered, um, if you've got observations or you just want to chat it through, we will be available uh, on Wednesday the 24th and 31st of August. You can pop into the branch from 7.30pm and we'll be there, we will be there till around 9. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to bring us back to a place of worship. I am aware that I have talked a lot and that I have covered a lot of ground. But what I want to say is this, it's, it is God whom we love, it is God whom we honour, it is God who has inspired us as elders to do our job and do it well. It is because we have a great and high view of who God is that we want to serve this church family and we want to give him glory and honour him. So let me just read to you from Psalm 8. If I can just get you guys to stand with me. Let's turn our eyes back to our Heavenly Father. Even as some stuff might be swimming around in our heads, we want to set our eyes on his majesty, on his holiness, on the wonder of his character and his being. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yes. Yes. Heavenly Father, as we look to you now, God, as we, as we let things settle in our minds, Lord, I just 
ask you to come and meet with us, Lord. We've considered you one God in three persons and our minds cannot grasp or contain how that works. We've seen you've revealed yourself to us in terms of headship, authority and submission. And our hearts are lifted by how beautiful an image that is. What a wonderful model you have given us of how to love and serve one another. God, I pray that you would minister to us now, Lord. Lift our spirits, God, as we worship you. Meet with us and give us a glimpse of your wondrous, mighty glory. Amen.